Let's uh, go to our God in prayer as we jump into His Word. Heavenly Father, we thank You for another Sunday where You have called us together to worship You, where You promised to meet us in Your Word. So as we open it up, would You help us to understand it, to internalize it? Would You comfort us where we need to be comforted? Will You challenge us where we need to be challenged? And above all, Lord, would your son Jesus be exalted? Would he be our treasure? Would he motivate all that we do? And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm Jeff. For those of you who don't know me, I work here in the youth ministry, and I am thrilled to get to open up God's Word with you this morning. Um, And my wife, Jackie, as was mentioned, also works here. She is the children's ministry director. And about three weeks ago, we moved up to Aliso Viejo from Dana Point, one of the reasons being closer to the church and the school where I teach at. Well, Jackie is born and raised Dana Point. I've been there for 13 years now, so we've been adjusting a bit to Aliso Viejo, and maybe you know that this past week, it has been surprisingly hot, at least hotter than we're used to, like we're in the 80s. Um, And we said to each other, man, Aliso Viejo is hot. We're starting to miss the cool ocean breeze of Dana Point. And then we paused and thought, are we really complaining about the weather when we live in South Orange County, one of the most beautiful places in the world? You would think, having grown up in the South, I'd be better than that. But it can be so easy for our standards and expectations for comfort to become normal. We love being comfortable. In our culture at large, and especially locally in South Orange County, comfort-seeking is our default. And we can often bring that mindset into our faith as well. It's easy to get into a mode of comfortable Christianity without even realizing it. So today, if you're like me at all, Peter is going to challenge our cozy Christianity. He's going to teach us that the Christian life is inherently uncomfortable. C.S. Lewis once said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. (laughs) If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. So if you have your Bibles or your bulletin or you want to follow along on the screen, let's look at verse 1 of our passage to hear Peter challenge comfortable Christianity. He's going to start with a command for us. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Peter gives us this command, arm yourselves, like a soldier putting on his gear for battle. And he points back to Jesus' suffering. Since he suffered, arm yourselves with his mindset. Think like him, imitate him, be willing to suffer like him. And this idea is something that Peter has been describing so far in his whole letter. We serve a Christ who was crucified. He was holy and sinless, which brought about his suffering and ultimately led to his glory. And Peter has been teaching that as we follow Jesus, 
our lives become shaped by that same story, that same pattern. And so Peter points to Jesus' suffering, particularly his willingness to suffer, and calls us to embrace that same willingness when suffering comes our way. You know when you go to a place like Disneyland, and maybe you're trying to figure out where you are, so you walk up to maybe a, a sign with a map on it, and it gives you the whole layout of the park. And that's helpful, but what's really helpful is there's usually a nice big mark that says, you are here. Well, throughout his letter, Peter has given us a map of Christ's life. Christ was holy and sinless, which led to persecution and suffering, but ultimately led to his vindication and glorification. That's where our passage uh, last week left off. Jesus has gone into heaven and sits at God's right hand. All things are subject to him. Well, let's remember that Peter is writing to a group of persecuted Christians, helping them make sense of their experiences of suffering in an oppressive Roman society that hates them. And he grounds them by connecting their experiences to Christ's path. He says that this map of Christ's life is your path as well. And right now, you are here. You are called to pursue holiness, and that's going to lead to suffering. If you think back to the Gospels, this is something that Jesus continually taught his disciples, and they just did not understand. They were expecting a Messiah who could bring military victory over the Romans. And Jesus regularly told them, hey, the Messiah must suffer. The Messiah will be handed over. The Messiah will be killed. And the disciples were often like, okay, cool, yeah, yeah, yeah. But now is it time to overthrow the Romans? Can I sit at your right and left hand even? Even after Jesus rose from the dead in Acts 1, the disciples say, now is it time to restore Israel's power? Can we go beat up the Romans now? And their mindset is the same way we naturally tend to think as well. We like to imagine the Christian life in the same way. We think Jesus earned our victory, so now it's time to win and dominate and be powerful. Now with Jesus, I can live the life I want. He becomes a resource for our true goals of self-advancement. But as Jesus continually corrected the disciples, Peter corrects all of us in his letter as well. We follow a Christ who suffered, and his path becomes our path. Not self-advancement, but self-sacrifice. And this is the main command of the passage. Since Christ suffered, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Imitate Christ in regards to suffering. He isn't saying go seek suffering out. Rather, if you follow Jesus, suffering will come your way. And when it does, we must respond to it like Jesus. We must be willing to suffer. And so if that's the, the main command, be willing to suffer, the question that Peter is going to answer for the rest of the passage is, why? Why must this be our path? And he's going to give us two reasons for why we must be willing to suffer like Christ. And the first reason is found in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Here's reason number one. For whoever has suffered in the flesh 
has ceased from sin. Do you catch the reason there at the end of the verse? Why be willing to suffer? For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And Peter isn't saying that someone who follows Jesus is all of a sudden sinless. And my guess is that if if you're a follower of Jesus, you probably already know that. But what Peter is saying is that if someone is willing to suffer for their faith, if they are willing to endure ridicule and persecution, that is evidence that they have broken with their previous life of sin. Peter is saying, be willing to suffer because it shows you've made a clean break with sin. You're on a new path now, a new way of life. And he then goes on to describe what this clean break looks like in the next couple verses. Look at those with me in verse 2. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. You see, when someone becomes a Jesus follower, this is what happens to them. Instead of living for human passions like the world around them, they become consumed with God's will, what God wants. Peter says the time is past for sinning, and he gives this big list of worldly sins. Whenever I read verse 3, I immediately think of that viral YouTube video from a while ago with there's this woman being interviewed by like her local news station, and there was a fire in her apartment complex. And she's explaining, yeah, when I realized there was a fire, I didn't grab my shoes, I didn't grab my clothes, ain't nobody got time for that. And that kind of became like the famous meme. Well, I just hear Peter saying that when I read this verse. He's saying, Ain't nobody got time for that. The time is past for sin. Any amount of past sinning is enough. Maybe for you it was a small amount of time, little to no time before your conversion. Maybe it was for many years before you started following Jesus. Either way, it was enough time. We should never think, I just need a bit more time for sin. Maybe I know I need to get right with God and and break off with sin, but I just need a bit more time first. Peter says to us, the time is past. Break with sin. Live for God's will, even if that means suffering. And if you're willing to suffer, Peter is saying that demonstrates you've truly made this clean break. A few years ago, my wife and I took a group of college students out to a missions conference in St. Louis from our church. And there was one 18-year-old girl who was on the trip with us. And when we got there, and we flew in on a Monday, and on that Monday, she told us that she decided she was going vegetarian. So one of the first things that we did when we got there is we went to the grocery store. We were staying in this big Airbnb for the week, and we needed groceries, and we were doing all this meal planning. And we went through all this trouble to get all of her special vegetarian meal options. Well, the first night, we go out to dinner, and she's looking at the menu, thinking about what she wants to order, and she says to the waiter, I'll have the cheeseburger. (laughs) And we looked at her confused, and she said, yeah, the, the burger just sounded really good, had to do it. 
And in our minds, we thought, are you kidding? All that trouble for your vegetarian groceries and the first opportunity to eat meat, and you do it. And that's when we quit college ministry. No, just, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. But the temptation of a burger on a menu was enough to show that she had not made a clean break with meat. And Peter is saying that you will be in situations where everyone around is sinning and you're expected to join in and you have to decide, sin or suffering. And when we choose suffering, persecution, and ridicule, that shows we've actually made a clean break. That means you're on the path. Your life looks different. Whoever suffers in the flesh has ceased from sin. I became a Christian when I was a sophomore in high school. And the next month, I was with a, a really good friend, a non-Christian friend, who brought me to a party where everyone was underage drinking. A drinking party, as Peter would call it in verse, verse 3. And a drink gets offered to me. Time to make a choice. Join them or face the social rejection and ridicule of my friends for identifying myself as a Christian. Sin or suffering. I had a friend who went to a secular college here in California, and on move-in day at his dorm, his first day at college, he sees a group of guys walking in beer cases up onto his dorm floor. Immediately, day one, he is invited in to this lifestyle. What do you do? Join them or identify yourself as a Christian and abstain and face the pretty heavy social implications which might follow you around on your dorm floor. Sin or suffering? Maybe you work at a secular company. Coworkers might be discussing worldly sinful things. Maybe your boss even is making inappropriate jokes. Laugh along or stand out as a Christian, lose favor with your coworkers, maybe even sacrifice your good favor with your boss, which might have lasting implications on your career, sin or suffering. In verse 4, Peter is saying that if you are a true follower of Jesus, meaning you've left your sinful desires behind, you've broken with sin, and you're following the will of God, you're pursuing holiness, you will find yourself in situations where you're expected to join in on sinful behavior around you. And when you don't, people will be surprised. They will malign you and ridicule you. Your abstaining is offensive to them. And let's be honest, we hate conflict. It can be easy to rationalize our way around getting in situations to face ridicule for our faith. When we're around non-Christian friends or maybe non-Christian family members doing and saying sinful things, it can be so easy to think, maybe today it's, it's just better to keep the peace. Just go along with it. We like to pretend there's a third way. What if I pursue holiness but dodge rejection and persecution? I'll just stay resolved or, or quiet, reserved or quiet and peaceable. But Peter is saying, that's not really an option. Your choices are suffering or sin, and if you choose suffering, that shows which path you're really on. Be willing to suffer because it shows you've made a clean break with sin. It shows us where we're really at. It's like an MRI for the soul. 
But Peter says there's something else you need to know if you follow Jesus down this path. There's something you need to know if you're going to stand firm through persecution and ridicule. And we see it in verse 5. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Peter explains to us that on the last day, everyone will have to give an account to God. So the second reason we can be willing to suffer is because God is your ultimate judge, not people. Everyone will stand before the true judge and give account. In verse 6, there is a tricky phrase that sparked a lot of debate where it says, this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Who exactly is Peter referring to by that phrase, those who are dead? Well, one interpretation reads this as saying, Peter's really talking about those who are spiritually dead. So this is just him saying the gospel is preached to, to all people, spiritually dead people like all of us before Christ. But this has some issues since Peter never uses the word dead in this way. And just right here in verse 5, he uses it to refer to physical death. Well, a second interpretation links this phrase back to our passage last week, where Peter writes that Christ went and preached to the spirits in prison. And Pastor Tom helped us wrestle through what that meant. But I don't think Peter's referring back to that. If you remember back there, Peter said Christ was the one preaching to spirits. Here, it's different language. It isn't Christ preaching per se, but just general preaching. And, and human beings are in view here, not spirits. We can also rule out interpretations that people who have already died are getting some sort of second chance. Tom showed us last week how that isn't consistent with Scripture, since men are appointed to die once and then comes judgment, as Hebrews says. So what exactly is going on here? I think what Peter is saying, and this is the, the main interpretation, and it goes like this. Back in Peter's day, there are Gentiles saying to these Christians, you guys claim to follow this Savior who beat death, but your Christian buddies are still dying. Clearly, this whole Jesus thing doesn't work. And Peter is conceding, well, yeah, according to human standards, Christianity doesn't seem that great. You get ridiculed, abused, hated, you miss out on all the parties, and then you die like everyone else. Why would anyone choose that life? Because there are greater standards than human standards. All will stand before the true judge one day, and those who follow Jesus will live according to God in the Spirit. He's saying that the gospel was preached, people became Jesus followers, but then those people physically died. The gospel was preached to those that are now dead. But while people mocked them, the true judge gave them life. The end of their path is glory, just like it was the end of Jesus' path. Peter is saying that if you're going to be willing to suffer like Christ, you need to know that God is your true judge, not people. There was a Gillette razor commercial from a little while back. I don't know why it stuck out to me, but it did. 
And there's this lobby in some sort of office, and there are five or six guys in suits just sitting there waiting to get called in one by one to a job interview. And all of a sudden, one of the guys gets up, sprints to the bathroom, pulls out his Gillette razor, and shaves his head bald. Then he comes back and sits down in the lobby with everyone else. And all the other guys just kind of look at him like he's crazy. They start ridiculing him, making fun of him. But then the camera zooms out, and you see that on the wall of this office are portraits of all the founders of the company, and they're all bald. (laughs) Then this guy gets called into the job interview, and the guys interviewing him are bald. You see, this guy realized that what ultimately matters is the approval of the bald boss, and he changed accordingly. He could care less what these other five guys interviewing thought of him. For a temporary amount of time, he looked silly and ridiculous, but he's the one who got the job. Something similar happens to us when our perspective widens. We realize that at the end of the day, what matters is what God thinks of us, and we'll care less and less about what others think. And this is difficult. We care so much about what others think of us. We like to think we can be Christians, but maybe we can do so in a way that's hip and relevant and palatable. We can be cool according to God's and human standards. And don't get me wrong, contextualization and making the gospel understandable is important, but there's a danger there where we care so much about being acceptable to the world that we lose the innate offensiveness of the gospel itself. If we desire to live a godly life like Jesus, we will be persecuted. But Peter says, take heart. God is your ultimate judge. And maybe if we're honest, at first, that doesn't sound like the best news. Okay, Peter, so you're telling me, I don't have to answer to human standards. I just answer to the all-knowing, righteous, and holy judge who knows every evil thought, desire, and deed I've ever committed. Okay, cool. But what I want us to see is how incredibly freeing it actually is to have God as your judge, not people. Peter has already told us that if we belong to to Jesus, that means we are fully accepted and loved by God. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, he says that we've been born again to a living hope. Chapter 1, verse 9 says that we've been given salvation for our souls Chapter 118 says we've been ransomed with the blood of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 9 says that we are a people of His own possession. We are God's people. We belong to Him. Chapter 224 says that Jesus bore our sins in His body on the tree. By His wounds, we are healed. Chapter 318 says that Christ's suffering brings us to God. Here's what Peter is saying. If you've put your faith in Jesus, his death on the cross has completely dealt with your sin, and you are now secure in his approval. You've been made right with the true judge, and he looks upon you with delight because of Christ. Therefore, Peter says in verse 6, we no longer have to answer to human standards around us. 
the heavy burden of performing our way into other people's approval is lifted. Do you see how incredibly freeing that actually is? Our world tends to get this backwards. The world says, actually, true freedom means getting rid of a God who judges. We can be free to do whatever our heart desires. But ironically, if we think this through, we would see that this just leads to despair. The playwright Arthur Miller illustrates this well through his character Quentin in his play After the Fall. In the play, Quentin says, For many years I looked at life like a case at law. It was a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart, then a good father, then how wise or powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now there is a presumption that one moved on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows what, I would be justified or even condemned, a verdict anyway. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty, no judge in sight. And all that remained was the endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which of course is another way of saying despair. You see, ironically, an empty cosmic bench makes everything meaningless. That's not freedom, that's despair. And Peter is telling us, though, that the cosmic bench is not empty and that this judge loves you and accepts you in Christ. And this infuses meaning into everything we do, including our suffering. It empowers us to endure ridicule from those around us because we are beloved by him. We can be willing to suffer because we don't answer to human standards anymore. We know that God is the ultimate judge. It's his approval that matters. Living out this way of Jesus means we will face opposition and persecution. But Peter gives us the resources to stand firm in our faith when it comes. We have to be ready for whatever rejection comes our way. Maybe it's in our families where we face ridicule and rejection. Perhaps it's a secular workplace for you where you're socially isolated because you live differently. Maybe it's classmates at school. Maybe we'll face ridicule and rejection from our culture as we hold to the teaching of God's word. Perhaps God will even place us in situations that many of our brothers and sisters around the world are in where their lives are at stake because of their faith. Richard Wormbrand was a Romanian pastor during World War II, and he was imprisoned for his preaching of the gospel. And he wrote down what has now been collected into a hundred prison meditations. And in one of those meditations, he said, I have accepted this proposal. Christians are meant to have the same vocation as their king, that of cross-bearers. It is this conscience of a high calling and of partnership with Jesus which brings gladness in tribulations, which makes Christians enter prisons for their faith with the joy of a bridegroom entering the bridal room. 
man, I want that boldness. I want that reimagination of my purpose. If police barged in right now and imprisoned all of us for our faith, which is a regular risk for many of our brothers and sisters around the world, will we have the joy of a bridegroom entering a bridal room? Man, what an image. That feels like a high call. And maybe you're like me, where you feel a gap between the call and where my faith actually is at. But I find encouragement in the guy who wrote this letter, Peter. He famously denied Jesus three times, afraid of what others thought of him, afraid of potentially suffering like Jesus. But then, a bit later in Acts, we see him boldly proclaiming the gospel, saying, we obey God and not men. And he ended up becoming a martyr who was crucified although he was crucified upside down because he didn't count himself worthy to die in the same way Jesus did. What changed? How did he go from coward to bold follower? Well, it wasn't because he found some inner strength. It was his encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. Remember, this whole command, be willing to suffer, is rooted in Jesus' suffering. He watched how Jesus' suffering proved his holiness. He watched how chapter 223 says that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He watched how Jesus, during his suffering, entrusted himself to the judge who judges justly. See, he's called us to have Jesus' attitude because he watched Jesus' attitude. And as he encountered it, he was changed by it. You see, we can be willing to suffer because it shows we've made a clean break with sin and because God is our true judge, not people. And if that sounds like a high call to you like it does to me, let Peter's life be our invitation. Come and get to know the Savior. Come and learn His ways. G.K. Chesterton once said, the Christian life hasn't been tried and found wanting, It's been found difficult and left untried. It is a difficult call. Be willing to suffer. But we know Christ is all worth it in the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a difficult call for us. We confess we don't have what it takes within ourselves to follow Jesus down this path. So would you, by your Spirit, empower us to have the same mindset that Christ did, to arm ourselves with his attitude, that we might imitate him, that we might be willing to stand firm in our faith when opposition and persecution and suffering comes. Lord, would you do that work in our hearts, change our our thoughts, our desires, our loves. Help us to see Christ and his path as truly beautiful. So, Lord, this morning, um, as we come now to the table, would you meet us in the bread and wine? Would you empower our faith, strengthen our faith as we reflect on what you have done for us at the cross? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.